There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Well, welcome back to the free lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, I got a question for you to start off the show. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Ask away. I caught you off guard there. (laughs) No, no. I was waiting for it. Do you ever listen to our show while eating lunch as it's called free lunch? I sometimes do. Yes. (laughs) Although the lunch is never free. True, true. Well, last week we had Tara McCool as a guest speaker who talked to us about compassion and leadership, and that was a really great discussion. And for those that didn't listen to it, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Exactly. So this week we are going to take a completely different turn, and we're going to focus on this question. And this came up in a conversation between you and I one day, and we were talking about market timing and how market timing really is the only investment question ever asked. It's just asked in different ways. That's right. We were talking about questions from clients, from investors. And really, as you said, every single question comes down to market timing. And when I think about the part of investing that causes people the most stress and possibly keeps them from getting the best results from their investments, it always comes down to some form of market timing. Like think about it, if someone's interested in buying a particular stock, or investing in a particular sector of the market, the question is always going to be, is this the right time to buy in? And I would say with that, they're getting that from some headline that they've read about that stock or investment. That's right. And usually what happens, unfortunately, is it's usually after something has increased in value quite a bit that it starts attracting headlines and then it attracts people's attention. Yeah, so that's a very big question. And when you think about it, market timing isn't really only limited to investment decisions. Every single financial decision has a market timing component to it. So for example, let's say you're looking at buying a house. So you have to make a decision to, should I buy it today? Which means that you might not have as large a down payment as you want. And so your mortgage will be larger, but maybe interest rates are low right now as they currently are. And maybe the house prices you think it's going to be higher in the future. So you have a choice. You can buy today, take on more debt possibly, as opposed to waiting for a year or two, having a larger down payment, less mortgage, but possibly the house will be trading at a higher or be offered at a higher price two years down the road. Well, and on buying that home, we've talked about how people look at houses like you never lose money when you buy a house, but that might be true if you've owned it for 30 years. Exactly. That's right. I was thinking about this the other day, even buying groceries. Do you spend more money today, let's say, to buy a case of Kraft Dinner at Costco? Katie? That's right. And for all of our American friends, that would be Kraft Macaroni and Cheese (laughs) Dinner. So if you buy a case at Costco today, it's going to cost you more money, which might mean you'll have to forego spending on something else. Or do you go to the local grocery store and buy a box of Kraft Dinner every week? Depends how much Kraft Dinner you're eating, I guess. Well, I was going to say two things with regards to Kraft Dinner. One is, are we recommending that people buy Kraft stock, Colin? 
Greg, you know, we never recommend that anybody buy any stock specifically on this show. Exactly. But I do recommend that people eat Kraft Dinner because it's delicious. Absolutely. We recommend you buy Kraft Dinner, particularly <laughs> if you're a university student, but even after. So we're faced with market timing decisions all the time in everyday life. But most of these, outside of, let's say, a house purchase, most of those types of decisions can be made without too much anxiety or stress. It's not that stressful to decide how many boxes of Kraft Dinner to buy at a time. But when we're making investment decisions, there can be a lot of stress in deciding whether the particular asset class, sector, stock, or bond is at a level where you can expect a reasonable upside. So it makes sense that investors, all investors, including myself and you, I'm sure, would like to have an answer to that question every time you have money to invest. But unfortunately, real life, there are no guarantees and no one can actually or accurately predict the future. So let's talk about that now. Let's talk about investment market timing. And before we get there, I've been guilty of this myself. I mean, I remember when we moved into our current home, you and I understand that the future is uncertain in all asset classes. And I remember coming to you and saying, Greg, I don't know what to do. Like, should I do a variable rate mortgage or should I lock in a five-year fixed because interest rates are at this? And I was quite stressed about it. And looking back on it, what a ridiculous question that I was asking you given our backgrounds. But I was caught in the human behavioral bias, emotional component of it. That's right. So yeah, basics of market timing. And we've talked about market timing in past episodes, but as we said at the beginning of this one, market timing really is the only question that's ever asked. It's just asked in different ways. And it's not impossible to do. There are ways or there are examples or evidence of people that have timed markets in the past. I mean, a current one might be not promoting it, of course, but the GameStop short strategy that some people participated in. That's actually a great example of market timing because you had people that made a lot of money. They got in early and got out. And then you had people that saw the euphoria and got in late and have lost a lot of money. Exactly. So both of them though, when they were buying that stock or that house or that car or whatever, I guess they're buying it because they expected it to go in a certain way. Anybody that's buying a stock expects it to go up. Like you'd never buy a stock saying, geez, I can't wait for this to go down so I can reap some capital losses. (laughs) But the idea that you can time this strategy of when to buy, when to get out, it just isn't in your favor. The odds just aren't in your favor. So with that, there are costs of market timing. So for every average investor who has a desire to watch the market daily or in some cases hourly, they might choose to do that, but it comes at a cost of something else. Like they're giving up some other activity to focus their efforts on watching that particular investment on a minute by minute basis. There's also transactional costs of market timing. If you're in a buy and hold strategy, you're buying something for the long term. If you're in a short term market timing strategy, well, you're going to have a transaction cost to buy it and a transaction cost to sell it. And you might repeat that over and over again. So there's definitely costs at being active. And then the opportunity cost, because it is, as we said, very difficult to gauge the future direction of any market, not just the stock market. I know we're going to talk a little bit about the bond market later, and but there's all kinds of markets that people try to time. And there's an old saying, Greg, and I might get this wrong, but it's not market timing, but it's time in the market. Sure. That's right. You've heard that one before. You bet. So proponents of market timing strategies would say, look, you can realize larger profits and minimize losses by moving out of sectors because you know one's going to go up or you know one's going to go down. And there's all kinds of things around the calendar, like the, what is it, like 
when in May go away type right. of scenarios where people believe that there is a cycle that can be repeated, which I hate to spoil it to the listeners, but it doesn't work that way. Right. Yep. yep. <laughs> so always trying to find things that are going to go up, invest in them and then sell them before they go down. It just isn't in your favor. So I'm getting pretty detrimental on market timing, but there are pros and cons to it. So the pros are in theory, you could have bigger profits. Sure. You could curtail your losses. If you think something's going to go down more, you could sell it. You could avoid volatility. So I guess back in 2007, you could have sold all of your stocks and avoided the global credit crisis. The pros could be that this is suited to a short-term investment strategy or short-term investment horizon. Right on. The cons against it are the daily attention that markets require, or in that case of GameStop that I mentioned, again, not telling people to buy it or sell it. Are you telling people to buy or to sell it, Greg? Never. I would never, never do that. Never, of course. Of course. But in that one, we keep referencing it, and I know people have heard a lot about it, but that one you had to follow on a minute-by-minute minute basis. That's right. It drew a lot of attention, and that's what brings it up in conversation so much because it was such a out-of-the-blue event. And fascinating to follow. Exactly. Right? Yeah, for sure. I learned a couple of sayings in following that, like diamond hands and paper hands, and I don't know if you're familiar with those. Can we talk about them on air? We can, oh, okay. we can. <laughs> what are diamond hands? So on the Reddit Wall Street Bets forum, there's a language that's been developed by these, I don't know, pseudo day traders. Right. And diamond hands is somebody that is going to buy the stock and hold it forever oh, through okay. all of its volatility because you just believe in it forever. You have diamond hands. Okay. Paper hands are somebody that will get scared and sell the stock. Gotcha. So Warren Buffett would be a diamond hand kind of guy. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> I'll just wrap up the cons here. So a couple more cons were the, as I said, the more frequent transaction costs. There are some tax disadvantaged issues around capital losses or capital gains if you are trading the same security and not, what is it, a 30-day window That's right. that you have to wait in order to repurchase that security. You can't treat it as capital gains. It gets treated as interest income in that case. And of course, just the difficulty in timing when to buy, when to sell, what to buy, what to sell. It just doesn't work in your favor. And listen, I mean, perfect market timing would be ideal. I mean, it would be a dream come true for all of us. And we can all say none of us would be working still if we were able to market time continually. So the upside of perfect market timing is obvious, but it's the downside. It's the risk that we want to focus on because one of my mantras when I'm looking at different decisions is, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? And then you have to evaluate the likelihood of that worst thing materializing. But when we talk about the risks or costs of market timing, there's some, the few that you've mentioned, and I just want to delve into them a little bit. So opportunity cost. There's a report by the research firm Dalbar, who looks at a lot of investments and investors and funds and in indexes. And so they published a quantitative analysis of investor behavior they looked at this period between 1995 and 2014, and their research showed that if an investor remained fully invested in the S&P 500 between those years, 95 and 2014, so I guess that's 20 years, they would have earned a 9.85% annualized return. It's pretty good. Not bad, almost yeah. 10% a year over that 20-year period. But if they missed only the 10 best days in the market, the return would have been almost half, 5.1%. So they lost almost half of their annualized return just by missing those 10 best days of the market. 
part of the problem is you get these big upswings in the market during short and volatile periods when sometimes if investors are trying to avoid volatility, they might have been out of the market during that period. So very tough. We talked about transaction costs. And basically, if you're moving in and out of stocks in particular or funds, trying to time the market or chasing a stock or fund performance, you're going to incur a lot of transaction costs. Certainly, if you're buying and selling stocks, you've got to buy in, you've got to sell out. Now, and that's one of those things, by the way, that over time for certain investors, if you're a Robinhood investor in the States and you're trading for free, which is not really for free, but we can talk about that on another episode, maybe you won't have that many transaction costs. But for the most part, for most of us, doing transactions or trading mutual funds can get expensive, and particularly unnecessary trading. And the last thing is tax costs, because let's say you're investing in an upwardly moving market, and let's say you're selling frequently and realizing capital gains, well, you're going to pay tax on those capital gains each year as you crystallize them. And if you think about it, if the market is moving upward anyway, if you were just to stay invested, you're going to defer capital gains until you actually sell the position somewhere down the road. And deferring taxes is reducing taxes because, of course, down the road you're paying tax with deflated dollars and things like that. So I think there are direct costs from actively trading, and that's typically a function of market timing is that active trading. And we should mention on the notion of active versus passive short-term versus long-term strategies, what do we tell people? We say, look at the long-term and markets are highly volatile in the short-term and that volatility smooths out over time. And it doesn't mean risks go away. It just means that the amount of volatility you experience over a five-year investment horizon or 10-year, even better, is certainly a lot lower than the amount of volatility in a five-month investment time horizon. Well, remember we went through a couple episodes ago, the difference between being invested in the market for a day, a week, a month, and a year, and the probability of a positive return. So this would be just buying the market, just being invested in, in this case, the US stock market. Exactly. And on any given day, you had a 53% chance of having a positive return, which means you have a 47% chance of having a negative return. Exactly. And that's without picking any specific company. That's just investing in the market. That's right. Exactly. And the only way to smooth that out was time because one day is meaningless. A week is meaningless, really. A year, some would argue, is actually meaningless data. That's right. And in fact, if you get down into the really statistical views of market movements, many people will say even three-year returns are basically noise. There's so much noise in the markets that what happens over a three-year period is not necessarily projectable into the future. So if you only have three years to work with then it's not that the stock market will work with you or work against you. It's that your time horizon is working with you or against you. Exactly. So let me ask you a question. So what is it that you think that encourages or impels people to start to question market timing and whether or not they should be in or they should be out of the market? Oh, I think it's, well, headlines for sure. Right on. And the people you associate with that have read those headlines or have a friend of a friend who's participated in something that was a no-brainer that worked out, but definitely comes back to headlines. And the headlines that we get these days are focused around sort of, I don't know, call it six key things. So six things that are all in essence asking about market timing just in different ways. And the first one that comes to mind is Bitcoin. 
Bitcoin is obviously huge. And Greg, are we promoting Bitcoin? Of course not. Of course not. I mean, if somebody wants to participate in it, that's up to them. We're not giving a recommendation. But we can only look back at, well, why does Bitcoin get so much attention? Well, currently, Bitcoin is priced around 51000 US dollars for one Bitcoin. That's a good number. Well, it is because a year ago, almost exactly, it was $8,901. So it's gone up like 600% in a year. So that's kind of hard to ignore. It's going to get some attention for sure. It's getting a lot of headlines. But actually, if you looked at the price it was last March versus the price it was two years previous to that, so March of 2018, it was $8,800. So essentially, no return over a two-year period. And actually, if you went back one year from 2020 to 2019, it actually was down like 50% or more, 60%. But it's because it's gone up so much lately that it's getting a lot of attention. So I looked at some of the headlines which are drawing attention to that. And the Financial Post in March 1st of this year, this is the headline. Post haste, mainstream acceptance or speculative implosion? Why Citibank thinks Bitcoin is at a tipping point. Well, that would draw some attention, right? Sure. Yep. Yahoo Finance on the same day, March 1st. Institutions are making bullish bets on Bitcoin, rallying to $75,000 by May or even higher. I'm going to buy some. I love it when they throw in the, or even higher. <laughs> I mean, I'm buying some for sure. <laughs> hey, hey, are you making a recommendation there? Oh, no, 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 okay. no, no. Right. no. Not at all. Good. Well, and then I look back at February 8th on CNBC. Tesla buys $1.5 billion in Bitcoin, plans to accept it as payment. Now, Greg, two weeks after that, the headline on BNN Bloomberg was, who runs Tesla? Some guy named Elon Musk? Elon Musk, yes. Isn't he the world's richest person or something like that currently? I think he might be. Okay. So two weeks after Tesla bought $1.5 in Bitcoin, the headline was, Bitcoin tumbles after Musk hints that prices are excessive. Oh. So which one is it? Well, I'm not really sure, and I'm not sure why he would be hinting that. When you and I hint something, nothing ever happens. That's an interesting comment because <laughs> this goes into the stock side, but I want to talk about it real quick. I had somebody reach out to me and ask me about a company called Clubhouse because Elon Musk had simply mentioned Clubhouse in, a, I don't know, a podcast or something. And the stock immediately went up like, I don't know, 50%. Of course. The problem, Greg, was that it was the wrong company because the stock that he was mentioning was actually a private company that doesn't trade. Oh. But there is a, a social media company called Clubhouse that trades in the pink sheets okay. that went up 50% only because it had the same name. That sounds like a bit of an oops. So now you got a market timing scenario on steroids because you had people that piled in that are now piling out. Right on. Well, let's talk about gold. Gold's another one that gets a lot of attention. There are people that talk about how Bitcoin might be the new gold, but you also have gold bugs out there that talk about gold is gold and they will die believing in it. Gold today is priced around $1,700 an ounce. A year ago, it was just under $1,600. Two years ago, about $1,300. And three years ago, about $1,300. So depending on how long you owned it for, when you bought it, you've either done well or you've done nothing. But the headlines from CBC of February 18th of this year, why cryptocurrency may be on its way to becoming the new gold. Just what I mentioned. That one's getting a lot of attention. Bloomberg, February 25th of this year, gold route deepens with metals set for worst month in four years. Well, that doesn't sound very good. Nope. But then you've got one March 2nd of 2021. 
And this comes from Markets Insider. Legendary investor Jim Rogers warns of bubble stocks predicts a gold and silver boom. I thought it was just about to go down though, Greg. Which headline is drawing the attention? It's the hard part. So how that plays in the stock market is the same thing. I mean, we're focused or we're not focused on, but we're surrounded by headlines every day. In this experience today, we're talking about the stock market as the S&P 500. The S&P 500 today was priced around 3,857 points, up significantly from last March, where it was 2,584 points. So what's that, about 30% or so increase? Well, that actually makes a lot of sense because what happened last March, Greg? Do you remember? Something about a pandemic and a global lockdown and something around a 35% drawdown on stocks, if I recall. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. And actually, when it happened last March, it actually made sense because stocks are priced based off of the future expected earnings of a company. And last March, all companies came to a halt and didn't sell anything. So the stock prices went down. Well, fast forward to this March and it looks up significantly. So the headline, CNN, December 17th. There's a reason to be bullish on stocks in 2021 too. Markets Insider, February 4th, 2021. The stock market could jump 20% from current levels as buy-the-dip mentality continues. That sounds good. Just a couple days later, that same place published, stocks are due for a correction, but investors should buy the dip as a major crash is unlikely in 2021. And then three days after that, Yahoo Finance posted, stock market outlook, we could have a deep correction. Well, which one is it? That kind of stuff will drive you crazy. And of course, you and I we read a lot. We read a lot of analyst reports or strategist outlook, economic outlook, stock market outlooks. And there's optimists and there's pessimists. And in this business, we call them bulls and bears. But who's right? Who's going to be right? And the answer is, of course, nobody knows for sure, just because there's so many variables. But it's not just stocks. Lately, bonds have been getting a lot of attention. Let's just go back and look at some of the headlines about bonds, because last May, which is only about nine months ago, New York Times, May of 2020, bonds beat stocks over the last 20 years. That's pretty good. That's more than one year. Exactly. And so that would lead people to think that bonds are not a bad place to be. And just in December, BNN Bloomberg, bonds will continue to rally into 2021. The Motley Fool, however, two days ago, Warren Buffett, bond investors face a bleak future. That doesn't sound like a rally. That's going to attract a lot of attention when a guy like Warren Buffett is talking about bonds facing a bleak future. And Forbes, a day later, could 2021 be one of the worst years on record for the bond market? Well, it could be. And it actually takes me back to an article, and I wish I still had it, but it was in the National Post in 2012, nine years ago. And the headline was, Bond Bubble About to Burst. So whoa, whoa, whoa. they meant 10 years from now. Exactly. <laughs> so nine years ago, of course, interest rates were quite low on a relative basis. And people felt that the bond bubble was about to burst back then. It didn't burst. It wasn't a bubble. I guess that's part of the issue. But who knows? And by the way, we're not saying that these people aren't going to be right. It could well be that this is a bad year for bonds. As it turns out, 2020 was an excellent year for bonds, just with the index. I believe the Canadian bond index, universe index, was up, I think, something in the order of 8% last year. And why is that? Which by any standard is an excellent year for bonds, and it's because interest rates had declined in response to the global economic slump, which is what you'd expect in a bad economy. So it's not impossible that bonds will have a poor year. It's just who knows? Who can tell? But it's not just bonds. 
So we've talked about gold, Bitcoin, stocks, bonds. What about interest rates themselves? Because interest rates obviously have a big impact on bond performance as well as stock market performance. CBC, January of this year, Bank of Canada holds rates steady at 0.25%, even as it expects the economy to shrink until March. But investment executive, February of 2021, Fed is in no hurry to raise interest rates, Powell says. And Markets Insider, February 25th, global stocks rise as Fed Chair Jerome Powell confirms interest rates will remain low for longer. Well, that sounds like interest rates aren't going anywhere, but does that mean they won't? Absolutely not. Well, haven't you had a lot of people say to you, well, everybody knows interest rates are going up. That's right. And not only that, not only interest rates, but why do interest rates go up? Inflation. And so let's talk about it because there's a whole lot of talk these days about not only inflation, but reflation, deflation, disinflation, hyperinflation, stagflation. Wow. And most of us can't even define all of those terms, but inflation is one that we can usually wrap our heads around pretty easily. Greg, I'm going to admit something on this episode. I can't define all of those terms. (laughs) I think I could if I tried, but there's a lot of them. You're fired. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like it's one thing to have a general understanding of things and anyways go on let's talk about the one that most people care about and that's inflation so canada's inflation rate this year for 2021 is running at about 1.27 percent in 2020 last year it was 0.62 percent in 2019 it was 1.95 and in 2018 2.27 so inflation right now is actually running at a lower level than most of the last several years, other than 2020, where we saw the worst economic contraction, I think, since possibly the Great Depression. So here's some news items. Bloomberg, February 8th, 2021. History tells us to worry about inflation. All right, I'm worried. Globe and Mail, February 28th. Gordon Pape says, as inflation brews, it's becoming treacherous times for investors. And he proposes a strategy to move forward. In Barron's, in February 23rd, The reflation trade is well underway. How long can investors keep smiling? Don't know. Okay. But do they tell you? They don't mention how long. (laughs) I'm hoping several years, but who knows. A CBC radio back in January 23rd, inflation versus deflation. What to watch for in Canada's economy as 2021 starts. And going back- Wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not really a call though. Like- No. It could be inflation or it could be deflation. So we'll just put them both in the same head. Why don't we flip a coin and move that way? And lastly- August 13th, so last August 2020, why stagflation is back on some trader's radar. So you know what? I want to worry about this stuff, but it's like there's so much to worry about. Maybe there's a better way. But I'll tell you, the headlines are what drive the anxiety because you don't know what to think and you're getting conflicting advice from experts on both sides of any particular coin and it makes it very difficult. Well, I like to think of it as the struggle And I had this discussion with a friend of mine last week and we were talking about raising kids and not to sound like poo-poo me or anything like that, but as a kid, we didn't have a lot of money as a family. So eating out, for example, wasn't really a thing that we did. My kids think that eating out is just normal, that in other words, they haven't had a struggle. And I think of this the same way as I think about the stock market. And all these headlines go back to your point about market timing is the only question that's being asked. If you think about it, somebody that came out of college in 2009, we'll call it, so just after the global credit crisis, all they've watched is a global stock market go up in their entire adult life, with the exception of what happened last March. 
Now, I would say that last March almost doesn't count because it was so short. It wasn't a true correction in historical terms. But not a true bear market anyway. That's right. Technically, it was a correction. It wasn't a true bear market. Like when you compare it to what happened in 2008, 2009, that time period, like that was like 18 to 24 months of markets being down. At one point, the stock market being down 50%. But what happened last March was just a blip. So investors that have only been investing in their adult lives since 2010 actually haven't faced that struggle. And I worry about those type of people when they see these headlines that say, you must buy weed stocks right now. You must buy cryptocurrency. You must do this. Everybody's doing it but you. Here's how to get rich. Like those type of headlines. You can actually understand where their form of market timing comes from. So anyways, what does that lead us to, Greg? Here's the thing. As I said earlier, there's nothing I'd like better than be able to sell stocks at market highs and buy them at market lows. That would be a dream come true. And it only requires two things. The first thing is knowing exactly when the market is high and at the same time having the discipline to sell when everything is going great. And secondly, to know exactly when the market's at the bottom and having the fortitude to buy stocks when everything looks incredibly bleak. And so if you consider all of those and even one without the other, even with the knowledge, but without the emotional ability or the discipline to be able to maintain it, it would be very difficult. Without both of them, then it becomes almost impossible. As you said at the beginning, some people can do it. Day traders, people that are willing to devote their lives to it, they probably do have developed systems that may work for them. And in fact, they may also be incredibly disciplined investors. And incredibly lucky. That's right. So is there a solution and how do we avoid putting ourselves in the position of having to make those timing decisions every single day because it's exhausting? I come back to Sir John Templeton, who most people may have heard of, who was a legendary value investor, and he founded the Templeton Growth Fund in, I don't know, 1947 or something. But he was a value investor, and he was investing long before that. And he said this back in 1945, so just think about how relevant it is today, even though it was 75 years ago. He said, the stock market always has been and always will be subject to wide degrees of fluctuation. When prices decline farther and farther, it's only natural human emotion to become cautious. Investors who have no pre-arranged plan to guide them not only fail to add to their stock holdings at the lower level, but too frequently add to the downward pressure by selling out part of all of the stocks they own. Any sound long-range investment program requires patience and perseverance. Perhaps that is why so few investors follow any plan. Investment success is the purpose of investment planning, but a byproduct of a good plan is peace of mind. And that really sounds a lot like what we've been saying over and over again, possibly ad nauseum to people who are listening to the podcast. And that is that if you develop a plan and you stick to it and you avoid making the emotional decisions or if you avoid making those market timing decisions, thinking that, oh, things are too high, we better get out, or things are too low, we should be getting in, and just stick to an asset allocation strategy and a predetermined plan, ideally with a written plan, with an investment policy statement, then we can avoid all of the stress and just try to have more peace of mind. We call it a positive investment experience, but really it's all about peace of mind. Yeah, I call it a rest and digest attitude. What do we learn about all this stuff? And as you say, we talk about it almost every week, but it's because it's a core belief system that 
You have to have a plan that incorporates how much risk you're willing to take, what your time horizon is, have a way of diversifying away specific risks. What else? Focus on keeping your costs low. That's right. And just sort of rest and digest. Stick to the plan. Spend the time that you need to developing the plan and make sure it's a plan that you believe in foresight you can live with and then live with it. Exactly. Right on. Well, listen, that was good. For fun, Greg, what are you reading or watching these days? Well, as you know, I'm still reading. I'm, I think I'm on page 700 of The Evening in the Morning, the book about England in the 10th century. This is the Follett book you're reading? By right? Follett, Ken Follett, that's right. Watching, we just finished season three of The Sinner. It's a crime series. Each season is a different crime. This season was particularly dark and troubling, but, <laughs> but an excellent series. What was the crime this season? It was a murder investigation, but with lots of other issues. Worth a look. And cool. you? I did start reading 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. I stole it from my daughter. Oh, I'm not okay. sure why she had it, but right. I thought I should probably read that one. And my wife and I just started watching The Morning Show. Have you seen that one? I have. Did you watch it? I did. Yeah, it was an excellent show. We're waiting anxiously for season two. Okay, good. Because we just finished the first episode the other night and it looks like we're going to carry on with it. Very good. And local events, I guess. Hey, listen, the weather's getting better. People are getting outside. I hear birds chirping. That's got to be a good sign. Okay, but here's a market timing question. Do you put away your snow shovel for the rest of the year or do you keep it out? Greg, I've lived in Calgary long enough. The snow shovel stays at the front door until at least July. Right on. (laughs) All right, well, listen, that was good. I guess that about wraps it up for today, hey? It does, yep. We'll sign off and we'll be back next week. Yeah, thanks for joining us again on the free lunch. Make sure you give us a rating if you're on Apple Podcasts or any of those other podcast services that allow that. And we'll see you next week. Right on. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2020.